0: Welcome to the Let's Develop podcast, where we explore stories and tools for social change to transform ourselves and the world around us. My name is Arta Soyans, and my voice will go with you for this ride. By tuning in now, you'll learn from experts from fields as diverse as health, community organizing, business, performance, and more, who share their tactics and mindframes, successes and defeats. Whether you've yet to begin your own social change efforts, or you're looking to refine them and grow your abilities, this podcast is designed to inspire you on your journey. So head on over to Podcast.com for detailed show notes and other info about this and other episodes. If you like what you hear, and even if you don't, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever else you're listening to let us know how we're doing. Your feedback shapes our journey. And with that, let's dive in. Cameron Norman helps people to innovate. He works with organizations like nonprofits, governments, and healthcare to create implement and evaluate new ideas, products, and services in the world. Trained as both a psychologist and a professional designer, Cameron brings both a creative and scientific approach to addressing complex problems in his role as the principal and president of Sense Limited, a Toronto-based consultancy studio. He's also part of the Faculty of Design at OCAD University, where he teaches graduate courses on design and health and serves as an adjunct professor at the Dalhousie School of Public Health at the University of Toronto. I am more than excited about this conversation with uh, Cameron. And is there anything that I missed in that intro to you? No, I, I I think that's just about it. I mean, the
1: other thing that I could have put in there is that I'm an amateur barista. I've uh, I've uh, taken to coffee roasting as a hobby, but uh, it uh, I don't know if it necessarily helps facilitate change, but it certainly keeps it well caffeinated. So uh, <laughs> that might be keep, the only other
0: thing. <laughs> it keeps the momentum going. Hey. Yeah. Yeah, that's super cool. Okay, so for for total amateurs, what's something about the world of uh, being a barista that most people don't know about?
1: You know what it is? Actually, I think the biggest thing is uh, simply making sure that you've got the right uh, coffee and the right grind at the right time. I would say if you do anything, if you're ever gonna invest in anything, aside from good beans, which is probably important, get a good grinder. Because it's the exposure to oxygen that really and water, for oxygen for decay, water for uh, taste that really will determine the most amount of enjoyment you're going to have from your coffee.
0: Interesting. Okay. Well, thank you for sharing. So, so, (laughs) (laughs) so, Cameron, what's what's your best hope for our conversation today? You know, I it's interesting. I my best
1: hope is to have a just a stimulating conversation about what it means to learn, grow, and change. I, I'm fascinated by the, the concept of let's develop. And uh, mm. that's really what I, I think I, I do, um, a large chunk of what my work and, and life is about. So, uh, the, But it's something that, that because it's part of what you do all the time, I don't tend to talk about it explicitly. So I'm really looking forward mm. to that. That's what I, I would like to, to come from our conversation.
0: So we'll peek behind the scenes of the <laughs> operating system that is Cameron Norman. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, maybe.
1: Yeah. Uh, I, it. I, I find that it, it's interesting that one of the things that uh, I do is teach and anybody who's spent enough time teaching begins to learn that one of the biggest benefits to teaching is that you get to learn what you know. Things that you didn't realize you knew until you—it comes out of your mouth or comes through a lesson—and you start going, "Oh, I actually know that. Hmm. That is something that I I know." And uh, or the other side is that I maybe I don't know more. I don't know as much about that as I thought I did. And I find teaching and conversation really expose that when when done in a nice, supportive way.
0: So let's for the for the audience, why don't we begin with uh, your day to day? So, what what does your consultancy practice look like? What kind of problems do you solve? What kind of things do you think about on a daily basis?
1: That, that's a great question. So, it, it's uh, it's a lot of fun, and uh, by fun, I mean I, I guess that's in a very nerdy kind of way. But I, mm-hmm. people come to me when they have a problem um that they wish to solve that they don't have a clear pathway forward um so it's it's innovation and i i don't i used to hide from that because i f- feel it's a bit of a buzzword at times but at the same time is that really what it is it's about doing and creating something new and putting it into the world and to create value for people like that's really what innovation is and, and that can be a big and Glamorous. It can be at a system level, and it can be just a tiny little thing that you do day to day as an individual. Like that's that's innovation. Where most of us are innovating uh, bits and pieces all the time. So, but the interesting thing is is that, particularly with areas like healthcare, uh, but it, it happens in other domains as well. People don't necessarily know what to expect. They're not sure what it's going to look like, and they don't know what they should expect as an outcome. And at the same time is in most cases, because you're dealing with organizations that don't necessarily have a lot of resources in the sense that, um, you know, they've got a chance to do something new. They want it to be successful, but they, they there's a lot of risk attached to it. So basically what I do is I talk to those organizations and and uh, help them think through how they set up their program and um, and then how they can, Determine what kind of value it's producing. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of interesting is that uh, you, you, a lot of these programs uh, and organizations, they know the content. They know uh, what kind of services that they want to deliver. Um, they know the people that they're working with and they certainly know themselves or as much as they can. Mm-hmm. Um, but what's interesting is that putting that all together does require um, a bit of an art. And uh, and that's really what I bring to my clients. It's a service design, but it's with a, a bit of a twist. And it's also about that feedback. Um, the thing that I think distinguishes some of the work that I do from some of the other uh, design agencies out there is that I really put a lot of emphasis on that evaluation piece of it. Because I often think that that's that feedback that gets to tell you whether you're on the right path or whether you're on a complicated path or, or what's going on. It's really that, that feedback system that says, are we making a difference um, is this creating more benefit than it's not that kind
0: of thing? Mm. So, so you said a couple of different terms that uh, folks in some communities may not be familiar with. Mm-hmm. So let's just let's just uh, uh, zoom in on them, uh, mm-hmm. kind of define them, so to speak, uh, and then we could continue the conversation. So you mentioned the term program. What's a program? Mm-hmm.
1: A program could be anything. Um, it, it's usually some sort of activity that you're, you're bringing together for a particular purpose. A program could be something where it's a food delivery program for food banks, mm-hmm. uh, ensuring that you you get food collected, food sorted, food delivered to those who needed. That when you link all of those things together, that's really what a program is. Okay. Um, sometimes it, it, it's used the same way as a service.
0: Okay. And that was going to be my follow-up is, are they synonymous?
1: Yeah. Well, sometimes they are, and sometimes they're not. Because sometimes, the reason why I use program, but that's a really good question. The answer, unfortunately, I find is a little more complicated than I wish it was. Um, The reason why program sometimes comes in is because occasionally you end up having something that requires multiple different services to deliver. Mm. Um, For example, if you're looking at, say, healthcare, sometimes you may have to go to one specialist or a practitioner who then gives you some sort of, uh, uh, you have some sort of interaction and then they have to refer you to someone else. Mm-hmm. So it's not one service. It's a continuous set of services, which makes it a program.
0: Mm-hmm. In
1: other cases, it could just simply be a simply a, a service. So it's a bit of both.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Okay. What is service design?
1: Service design. Oh, that's a good question. Well, to me, service design is really about taking something that people are going to use. So it's it's human-centered. So you're designing it for individuals. And asking the big question is, what's this intended to do? And a service is effectively some sort of experience that they're, that somebody is getting. And it could be a uh, um, learning something. It could be interacting with a product. Uh, mm-hmm. But something that has a purpose to it. Well,
0: well why, don't we, why don't we throw in an example that you started off with? What about coffee? Yeah. What's an example of a service associated with coffee?
1: So a service may simply be something along the lines of, of going to a cafe. And it could be the art of actually getting coffee. When you think about service design, what it might do is good service design, I would say, would take a look at the entire experience. So it might be you, and it might be a barista on the other side, Mm -hmm. and it might be them preparing a coffee. So if you say an espresso, something that's relatively simple. But the entire service is also something along the lines of the experiences. How did you find and choose that particular place? And it could be because it's the only place that's in your neighborhood. It could be that it's, it's someplace that you like to read. But, but what it does is it gets you to start to think, if you're the, the owner, the barista, to think what is it that you want this individual to experience? And then, as a customer, what do I want to experience as a customer? And trying to match those things together. So, as a barista, I want to make sure that you hopefully um, like the coffee that I provide you. It tastes to your satisfaction. It it it's at a price point that you're you're comfortable with, and it gets you. Where you want to go. So if it's to go, it's something that's fast, it's in a cup that, that that keeps the coffee relatively warm for a decent amount of time, or it fills your reusable mug, for example, or something like that. Mm -hmm. If it's to stay, you know, it's more of the cafe experience. So the service might be here, I'm going to deliver you coffee in in a cup, but I'm also going to provide you with seating in a place that's reasonably comfortable so if you're looking to to sit and chat with friends um, you know it might be a place that has tables that are that are relatively small enough that you're close together that you can have an intimate conversation if you're there to work on a laptop maybe a big table might work if you're there to read a book maybe comfy chairs might be the best way to do that and do you have a right mix of those things Mm. that's really a way of thinking about what a service could be so it's it is about providing coffee, but it's also about that entire experience about what that what that looks like from a business perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the same thing could also be said if, if you're looking at sort of a healthcare experience. It's about, you know, why are people showing up? Is it just that I've got a problem with my elbow or my knee, or is it a, is it a bigger question? Is it about something about how did I get injured in the first place, or Am I, you know, how well am I? How, how am I feeling? Those sorts of things. So you take that same kind of approach and you look at it in terms of what it's supposed to do and what's being delivered. And then that whole experience around that and, and the different possibilities that you could generate hmm.
0: um, around that uh, that service. What's an example of a common problem in healthcare where service design might be of value?
1: Oh, there's a lot of them. (laughs) And and so one of the ones that, that, you know, a great example, for example, is when you're dealing with um, more sensitive issues. And I'll I'll use a great example of this, um, actually from a a study that was done a few years ago around clinics uh, for eyesight. So if you're coming to an institution and you've got poor eyesight, it, it's always going to be a challenge for you to get from one place to the other because, you know, if it's a new environment, you don't necessarily know where you're going and you don't have the visual acuity to be able to use traditional markers. So there was um, a designer from uh, Scotland, I believe it was, and, and she she took 10 people with different levels of eyesight impairment um, and and the sort of nine people and the 10th person had 20-20 uh, vision. So what you had is somebody who had uh, complete blindness uh, somebody with a uh, who used a, a cane for example, somebody who had a seeing eye dog, somebody who had near sight farsight and a number of other ones which I didn't hmm. really know and what she did is is she did a study where she put a uh, like a GPS motion tracker that they carried and their task was is to enter a clinic and they basically had to go from the entrance to the clinic and what they did is they tracked where they went, and how long it took them to get there. Mm -hmm. And it was interesting to to watch from a service perspective what that would look like from different points of view. Now, number one, I mean, my initial question is, why would you put a clinic that is involving eyesight and disability so far deeply embedded into the end of the, the hospital that you have to go through all of this to get there? That's another question. But one of the things that they did is they figured out what were the tools and methods and approaches that everybody used to get to where they needed to go. And that included Mm -hmm. things like asking questions of uh, information desks, reading signs for those people who could see a little bit, um, that kind of thing. It was really interesting because it does get to that a number of questions as to convenience, how you set things up at the beginning, like who who set this up in the first place? You can almost be assured. It was not someone with visual impairments who decided to put mm. the clinic where it was. And the interesting part of the story was the person that found it the fastest was actually the person with the seeing eye dog, except, and not the person with 20-20 vision, which is an interesting thing to begin with, mm. because the person with 20-20 vision got so lost because of the wayfinding signs and how poor they were, it was actually the person with the dog that actually found things fastest. However, the last step of the journey, if you could imagine, was a set of stairs that you had to go up. So was not only was this not on one floor, but you actually had to go up a flight of stairs. And the mm-hmm. stairs happened to be in a new wing that were glass. And dogs can't see through glass easily. So they, they have a, a difficulty visualizing that. So the dog actually had a difficulty navigating up the stairs. So what it is, is they've designed a service for people with visual impairments for whom Seeing eye dogs is not uncommon. Using uh, materials that are are resistant to dogs' abilities.
0: Mm. If you think about that, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: you know, and that's an example of of health. Now, you could argue that, well, you know, none of that has anything to do with your ability to see or not. But from a service perspective, it suggests that how have we designed our system to be welcoming? If 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 a hospital, for example, is designed to be healthful have we made the right choices in where we put things and how we build things that foster that healthfulness mm. in what we do and i think maybe the argument in that particular case is the answer was no but mm. you know that's you know open to discussion i guess
0: now who are the stakeholders that want these problems solved in healthcare
1: these are often so people who are working closer to the margins of the health system, and are fed up.
0: <laughs> what does that mean?
1: So by that I mean is that often people who are working on those areas that are um, often forgotten, where there's a, a greater attention, I think, to the uh, to the human element, particularly in healthcare. Um, healthcare is, is a, obviously a very big domain. Some of it is more technical, and some of it is more relational. And what I mean by that is that there are certain things where you can go in, and and yes, your experience with your health provider is important. But much of it is is designed around, uh, you know, somebody has a very particular skill, there's a particular technology, there's a particular drug, and that you know that will look after it, and you can you can create a, a positive health outcome without it uh, intensive or even enjoyable interaction with your health provider.
0: Mm. But
1: then there's areas where that's critically important, and those are things like working in palliative care, working with seniors, working with people with mental health challenges, mm. um, those sorts of things where that relational component is, is, is critical, working with children, that sort of thing. Mm. Uh, those are those areas where I, I find there's a lot of potential and need for service design, mm. partly because bad design means people disengage. For example, if you have a mental health crisis, and Till or if it gets to a point where you are uh, threatening others or your own life, you can survive out in the world. And it, it's, it's not a very good existence, but you can do that. Um, if you need open heart surgery, you can't. Hmm. you that's more technical kind of a a thing, just to use an example. Mm. Um, It's not like you can get care elsewhere. Whereas with mental health, you can get care from a trained professional, but you can also get uh, support from a friend, uh, a paraprofessional, Mm. clergy, something like that. And depending on your situation and, and the context, you still might get Benefit And maybe you get what you need. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also the realm of the complex. So those areas that are much more complex where you have different sets of interactions happening at different timescales and lots of different things happening. Those are areas that are really much more ripe for uh, service design because we don't really have best practices. We have maybe uh, useful examples, but we don't necessarily have best practices that you can apply to every single interaction. You've got to custom create
0: it. Question, how how would you differentiate what is, let's say, a best practice versus something that is... You know, evidence base.
1: Well, I would say that both of them are are tied quite close. I mean, I I think, for example, when when you think of best practice, do you know about the Canevin framework? Have you ever heard of that?
0: Why, why don't you share it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, sure. It, it's a it's a Welsh term. So Knevin, it's C Y N E F I N, and really what it is is it's a framework. It's a decision making framework based on the level of of uh, this is going to sound quite technical, but really the level of order you're talking about in a system. So for example, best practice is where you have a pretty simple system. So time and again, you can take evidence and go, if we run an, an experiment multiple times over, we can probably you know, understand what the mechanisms of change are, have some ability to predict what, the, what change is going to happen and to
0: mm-hmm. what effect. That would be a first order system. Yeah.
1: Yeah, like a first-order system sort of thing. Um, and so what you can do is really see really clear cause and effect, and a lot of mechanical kind of things are, are are like this. So in that case, you can build up a lot of evidence to say, this is, this is what you ought to do in this particular situation nine times out of 10, and, and be pretty satisfied that you're going to get a, a relatively consistent answer. But then there's areas that are a bit more complicated. And those are areas that have a lot more working parts to them. But nonetheless, there's still a decent amount of order within them. And those are those kinds of things that that can allow you to reasonably predict things. Let's use an example like your car. If you take a car into an honest mechanic, Mm -hmm. you know how they talk about four out of five dentists recommend something. You might have four out of five mechanics go this is what i would do the fifth mechanic might do something else but both but all of them might get to the same response mm-hmm. they're using a, a type of framework and they're using evidence but there's a little bit of an art to it this is really where experts come in handy they're the first order system are those ones where you, you, you know, the evidence somewhat speaks for itself. The other ones are where expertise really comes in.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But then there's this, this, these domains of, you know, there's chaos, which is a little bit, you know, it's on its ominous
0: own ominous sounding.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. So that's where you have complete, you know, uh, no ability to discern any kind of patterns because there's so much happening all at once. There might be some order, but you certainly can't tell much about it. Um, but then there's this whole, um, area um, of the complex. And Dave Snowden actually has quite an amusing video where he talks about the idea of using a, a party to use as an example. And I like using that as a good example. Is, and what a party is, is that you can have the same group of friends and you can invite them to five or six different parties. There will be things that will happen consistently, but you can't necessarily tell what's going to happen at each party. Mm-hmm. And that because it's it's really dependent on how people are feeling, what the weather is like and and that. But you, you can influence it a little bit. You, you do know that with people that you can, you know, certain spaces work better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, certain music might be better, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But at the same time is you can't keep repeating it. So if you had six parties and you had the exact same space, the exact same music, the exact same food, people would find that a little boring it wouldn't be the same attractiveness every time. So you'd have to mix it up. You'd have to kind of use some feedback. And and that's really where I come in with the work that I do is I help them people collect the feedback and help them design and redesign their programs for a complex environment when they know that there isn't a best practice. You you can't just do the same thing over and over and over again. You have to continually modify it and work with people and, and context to be able to maintain something.
0: Mm-hmm. So part of part of me wishes to to dive deeper into this world of service design, and part of me wishes to take a, a quick step back. Now that I think the, the audience has a good sense of sort of what's what in your world right now, mm-hmm. um, I'm wondering about Cameron Norman. I'm okay. wondering about uh, you know what's your story? How did you end up in a place where you work with chaos? You work with complexity. <laughs> you know, guide us through through that journey. So.
1: Um, I think this started by uh, I was very fortunate i uh, one of the most notable markers of this journey actually happened at my high school graduation. Mm. And what's kind of an interesting story is that I ended up going with my my friend. Neither of us had dates. Neither of us kind of wanted to bring dates. So Mm -hmm. he and I, we just kind of went together. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing is that for some reason, because we didn't have any dates, there was just the two of us, um, they stuck us at the table with all the teachers Mm -hmm. and the, the teachers' spouses and stuff like this. As it happened is, I happened to be sitting across from the husband. Of, who was in charge of the grad that year. And he was a professor at the university. And this was in um, Regina, Saskatchewan. And his name was mm-hmm. Paul Antrobus. And Paul had just come back from China. And uh, he had spent time there with some students. He'd spent a lot of time. He and his wife had spent 10 years in India. And I'm listening to this guy, and he says, "Oh, I'm a psychologist." And of course, I had these ideas of what a psychologist was, and that was thinking like Freud and Skinner, rats, and you know that kind of stuff.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Here's a guy who's talking about Indian healers and the Chinese way of of doing psychology and stuff like this, in addition to being a uh, a psychotherapist and all this. And I was like, wow, this guy's really interesting. And so here is the grad night and you're supposed to be spending it all with your friends, dancing and doing all that kind of stuff like this. And I, I just found myself fascinated by this guy. Uh, I just wanted to talk to him all night. And so, you know, I eventually I'm like, okay, I need to spend time with my friends. I'm like, when I go to university, I've got to take a class from him. So that's what happened. I, I went into to, to school and um, I took a class from this guy and he The very first class so he comes in and this guy looks like um dr emmett brown from back to the future i mean he just Mm -hmm. he's got the long white hair he's kind of you know it's an interesting character and we get into psychology 100 and he sits up on a table and welcomes everybody and then he puts in a a videotape and and he showed the power of 10 i don't know do you know that the from the uh, charles ray eames uh, from the 1970s and and but effectively, what it does is it shows a a couple who are in a park in Chicago,
0: yes, and, and, yes, and then it yeah, zooms I do remember up remember that yeah,
1: and it zooms up and it zooms to the point where you start to see the powers of ten, so you see them, you see the blanket, you see the park, the neighborhood, city, state, country, continent, earth you know, solar system, and it goes on and on and on. And then it goes into areas, it gets to the point where you're not even sure what you're looking at. And then what it does is it goes all the way in and zooms into the person's hand and then goes into everything. Mm-hmm. So, of course, everybody's sitting in class and looking at this going, okay, am I in the wrong class? I don't know no. what this is. <laughs> and he turns he turns the video off and he says, this is the domain of psychology. Let's begin. Wow. And my jaw dropped. Wow. And I was like, what? And, anyways, he, he ended up taking us all, but certainly me personally, onto a ride that was um, one of the greatest ones I've ever had in my life. And, and it continues just in terms of what this means. And he talks about, you know, if, we're, if it's about humans, about us in the world, this matters. This matters to all of us. So, understanding how we think how we behave, how we make things happen, how we, Mm -hmm. what we fear, all this sort of stuff like this is, is, uh, is what psychology is all about. So that's, that's what started me. And, but he, he was somebody who was a scientist and a practitioner and he was, Mm -hmm. he'd spent time around the world. And this is a guy that sort of understood that the world isn't all neat and structured is that there are things we can do to manipulate ourselves or others. And there's things that that happen predictably, and there's things that just happen somewhat randomly, and we have to we have to encounter all that. Mm. Um, but one of the things that really got me thinking differently was fast forward. I was doing a master's degree in in community psychology in Waterloo, mm. and um, I uh, I ended up wanting to do something different. I had done lots of different things. And so we had a practicum and I, I told the practicum instructor, I said, I'd like to do something I've never done before. I really want to get to use this opportunity. So he said, well, I've got an opportunity. He worked for the school board. And he said, I've, I've got a, a program I'm in the behavior division of, uh, of the school board. And, and we've got a program that's a, a new innovative program bringing together the public and separate school board and, and the, criminal justice system and that. And we've got kids who can't be in a regular classroom for lots of reasons. Um, They have lots of home life challenges, mental health challenges, that sort of stuff, but we still have to educate them. So if you want a challenge, we need somebody who can do program evaluation. Mm -hmm. with them. And I was learning that at the time. And, uh, but we also need somebody who has the soft skills. And I had done some counseling and stuff like that. So um, they said, okay, great. So you seem to be the guy who, who has these kind of skills. So come on in. I'd never worked with teenagers before and it blew me away. And uh, I had these, the two head teachers there were people that really understood where people were. And uh, they could work with these kids in a way that almost nobody else could. Mm. And um, just to watch the transformation that happened with these kids um, just changed how I saw everything. And that really was complexity in its, at its core. And it got me to thinking a little bit about how, how I c- could, could influence that. The last piece I would add is that one of the things that the kids were doing is they had internet time. Now this is, I mean, this I'm dating myself here, but this was back when the internet was really quite novel. They had like mm-hmm. one computer in the whole school that had mm-hmm. internet um, connectivity. And so kids could get an hour on the internet. Now these kids were were homeless. Um, sometimes they got kicked out. They were they had all kinds of com- complexity. And this is before Google. So this is in the late, mid nineties. Mm-hmm. So uh, these kids were able to solve problems through computers. So that set up the last chapter. I was so fascinated by this, watching how these kids were able to navigate this, that I ended up connecting with a, a faculty member at the University of Toronto, Harvey Skinner, and he um, he was interested in using the internet as problem solving. And I was less concerned about the the technology, I was really interested in how do you make sense of chaos and complexity using tools, creative problem solving. And that's really what got me into design and, and Mm. other things. Mm. So that's probably a a very long answer to how I I got to where I am, but um, that's really a lot of it is that you you started, I started to understand a little bit about how people work and um, how we could create conditions that really support people in creative problem solving in creating change and also doing it in a way that respected complexity also sometimes respected chaos and also leverage those areas where we don't have that, where we can actually create the, some best practices, if hmm. you will.
0: What's what are maybe examples uh, of conditions for creative problem solving that people could implement in their own life or, where they might see this in action mm-hmm. where where they can they could leave this conversation being like okay well now i know how to do you know a new thing or or to frame something that i already do or that some people in my community already do as um you know this thing that cameron is talking about Yeah. well in, in many cases it, it's almost
1: in interrogating your own assumptions about a particular problem a somewhat famous example, but I think it's a good example is is the idea that if you look at the life of a power drill, apparently the people who buy power drills use them for about 10 minutes over the course of their entire lifetime. Oh wow. Which kind of does make a little bit of sense. You know, you you know, a few seconds here and there and and all that sort of stuff. But most the average person gets a drill to make holes in their wall so they can hang pictures and stuff like that. Yeah. So sometimes you sit back there and think, well, I want to hang a picture. I need a power drill. Why do I, why do you need a power drill? Well, the answer is because I want to hang a picture. So the creative problem solving comes in by asking, well, why? Like it, it, it's almost going back to that, that childlike thing, asking, well, hmm. why do you need to hang a picture? Well, because the picture won't hang itself, right? Well, do you need a picture? Well, could you, could you hang it with something else? Hmm. Maybe. Do you need to hang the picture? Could you put it on a, on an easel?
0: Hmm.
1: Could you, you know, like you start to think a little bit about what's the picture meant to do? Hmm. Well, it's meant to make things pretty in my house. Well, could you use a coat of paint? Could you use a plant? You start to, to think that way. Now, the end result might be you still have to go to Home Depot and buy a drill, Mm. But the but you may find that the solution that you found isn't actually the one that you need. In fact, it, it you're you're asking a bigger set of questions about what is what are you asking it to do for you? And that's really where the creative problem solving comes in. Oftentimes people think, well, you know, people need a new program. Well, maybe they don't. Maybe, maybe there's something you're already doing that you could just do a little differently. Or maybe you could take something out of their lives. That would make their lives a lot easier. Or maybe maybe the answer isn't something that I do. It's something that somebody else could do sort of thing. Hmm. So you start to ask yourself, um, what is it that I'm asking of this situation? And so creative problem solving is really just about interrogating the situation and what you have available and asking, is this really what I need? Is this really what I want? Mm. And and who wants it, and for what purpose?
0: So so, what I'm thinking of in terms of a a tool is something called time boxing. Mm-hmm. So so, let's say there's a particular problem that you know somebody once solved, like putting a timer on for ten minutes, um, sitting down and asking these kinds of questions. Like I could see that as an environment for for creative problem solving. Right. Mm-hmm. In your experience, what are some other conditions for creative problem solving that you've seen maybe for individuals, but maybe also in, in teams and groups of uh, individuals.
1: Oh yeah. Well, th- th- there's a lot of them. I mean, some of them are um, simply getting um, like alternative perspectives. Um, so the time boxing thing is, is a great example is that by forcing yourself to, th- you know, I, I don't like using the term think outside the box cause it's a bit cliche, but, but that idea of thinking beyond, what it is that, um, you know, the standard, giving yourself some, t- some time and constraints to be able to do that mm. can be really powerful. You talk about teams. One of the things with teams is, is um, there's a lot of different dynamics in, if you think about what the dynamics might be between you and another person, there's, there's a lot going on. There's like, yeah. how, how, how much do you know a person? How long have you known them? What kind of interactions have you had in the past? All that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. You start to add that within a group, And these are things we kind of forget about. So a group comes in together and and the answer might be, well, what's this group intending to do? So if it's a team at work, you have to think about does somebody here have more power than someone else? If they do, what's the implications of you challenging someone with that power? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, if I'm looking to solve a problem, what am, am I, do I feel comfortable suggesting something that goes against what that other person might say? Mm-hmm. The other thing is, is if you've got certain people that know each other really well, is, uh, you know, maybe they, they might think alike. So, for example, uh, brainstorming. There's a lot of research that shows that brainstorming is not particularly effective to do it in the traditional way and the reason for that comes down to this is
0: what is what is the traditional way
1: so the traditional way might be that you might have a facilitator or someone gets up and say well let's come up with as many ideas as we can as a group the thinking behind that is that you know the more brains you have looking at a problem and coming together with some different ideas the the more variety you're going to get the chances are you're going to get a better idea because you know all of us are smarter than than one of us. That's kind of the thinking. But the problem is the social dynamics behind that. So what happens is somebody goes and says, hey, the first person comes out with an idea. The next person might also come up with an idea, but chances are likely the third person is probably going to go scaffold off of one of the first two ideas and go, you know, I really like what Art said. I agree with that. Let's add to that. And so what you've already started to do is starting to funnel the thinking towards a particular solution, and it might be a great one, Mm. but you're already Mm. limiting the scope of things. Mm. The other thing is, is that it also depends on who says it. So if your boss um, contradicting that may or may not feel something you're comfortable with, whether she or he is fine with that or not is is another story, but um, you might not feel comfortable with that. Uh, so you're going to hold back some ideas. So one of the things that you can do, for example, just to take that brainstorming is what they find is it's, it's, you actually are going to get a lot better ideas, by and large, if everybody does it individually, and then presents it as a group. So if you can anonymously put up a bunch of ideas, and then you all of a sudden you find you get a, a much more variety, and then as a group you can come together and say, I like this idea, I can organize this idea, we can put these ideas together, that kind of a thing. Hmm. The other thing that also happens is, is that you know, one of the things we often look for is, is diversity. And diversity not just is kind of a social goal, but is also the idea of diversity of perspective. Because often people who understand systems and systems thinking... What
0: does that mean, to understand systems and systems thinking?
1: So if, if you're thinking about system, like the, the concept of systems thinking as an idea, yeah. um, which is thinking about systems, basically how things are connected. And we, we bound and d- define our systems as, as we want. A good example of this might be uh, if you say, well, who's part of our organization? Now you might say, well, the paid staff. Okay. Um, do the people that clean our offices, are they part of our organization? Mm-hmm. You might think, well, they don't work for us, but then again, we can't really operate if we don't, you know, have a clean office or mm-hmm. hmm, maybe, maybe they are.
0: Something that lots of people don't know about me is that I, my first job is as a cleaner. So I started cleaning when I was 12. Oh. This is, uh, you know, we're, we're immigrants and my mom came, you know, uh, well-educated woman had to do something in Canada. And that was what we did. And, this is time and time again, you not only know, but feel like really deeply can feel that inability by often office workers to recognize the whole complexity of what it means to have their operations go through. Yeah. Meaning, sorry, that sounds vague, uh, how they relate to the cleaner. Yeah. Day in, day out, like the stories that I hear, um, and the experience that I've seen, it's uh, it's kind of mind blowing, you know.
1: I'll bet it is. I'll, yeah, I'll, bet, yeah. that, I'll bet that. I bet that. I because you know, when you think about a cleaner, you see everything. You 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 are intentionally looking at all the things that people either don't want to look at, or forget to look at, or mm-hmm. or are looking at but can't see, you know, the little bits of dirt and, and arrangements and how things are organized and stuff like that. And that's a different perspective yes, than, than those who are not charged with that. Yes. You know?
0: And I think this ties closely to that systems. Like, I feel like we could definitely build off of that as an example. Yeah.
1: And so that that's a great example of systems thinking. So it isn't... Is is one of the things that that it's funny for somebody who who likes who works in this area called evaluation, which has a a concept that's very, has a judgmental kind of a hue to it. Is that interestingly is that most of this is not about judgment at all. This is about just perspective. Is that you know some perspectives are more useful than others to achieve something. So if you're on trying to understand an organization, there are times when you want to get as many different perspectives as possible. Sometimes you want to over amplify one because it may be the the unconventional one. It may be somebody like a cleaner who sees things in a way that that patterns and connections and relationships that everyone else can't because they're either too close to it, because they're not training their eye on that, Mm -hmm. because they don't have the experience of that. Mm -hmm. And so that can be incredibly useful for an organization. And we talk about creative problem solving Mm -hmm. by bringing that in. Mm-hmm. And, and to use a really direct example, one of the biggest flaws that we saw in the early stages of, of infection control in hospitals, it happens when you have a building that puts sick people all together. And that's a whole other story. But hmm. the fact is people get get, um, you know, get infections. Well, one of the things that they, they did in the early efforts to try and curb infections was they started asking people how might we do this, so they asked the nurses, they asked the doctors, they asked the interns, and they asked that, yeah, they got some interesting ideas, but it was the cleaners they 're the ones that could see who was washing their hands, you know how mm-hmm. much they were filling up the, up the soap, how hmm. much they were how much all of this stuff was happening, how they were let into certain places and excluded from others. By bringing them into the conversation, all of a sudden it's like, oh, wait a second. This is, these are the people that are charged with keeping things clean. Maybe we should have them involved in our discussion as to how we can prevent illness. They're not healthcare professionals, but yet at the same time, they very much are because they're essential to making sure that people are healthy. So that's that's that kind of systems thinking. Mm. Yeah. And 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 really for what what I do is, is really helping people encourage them to figure out what are the perspectives that are going to be most useful to bring to the table to, to engage in this conversation about how we design the services and products, I guess you could say, that are going to, you know, do the best for uh, the
0: system. Hmm. And, I, and I could see how that th- that frame, that mental model requires an ongoing zooming in and zooming out.
1: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that that's really part of it, it is, uh, I mean, one of the things that much people in design might know is this idea that you want to get some diverse ideas, really kind of zoom out, and then you need to focus it. To figure out, you know, what what do we do from there?
0: So, so, so sorry, the word diversity. I I feel like I derailed us. You were talking about diversity as more than just like a social goal, but you were talking about diversity from the point of view of um, creative problem solving as well. So, just one more stab at diversity, if you can. Sure.
1: So, really, what that is is that diversity of perspective, the diversity in the way of thinking. So it's not just about, um, I'm going to see the world from my perspective. My perspective ha- is rooted in who I am as a person, maybe my professional background, my years on the planet, um, the amount of time I've, I've spent with a particular topic, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Now, sometimes some of the more social aspects about the color of my skin, the country I came from, the languages I speak matter more than others, and sometimes they don't. Sometimes my training matters more than others, than than others, really what the key thing is figuring out what makes them, what matters in with the problem that we're trying to solve. Mm. And in most cases, the more you can get those different perspectives, the more you start to see, wait, maybe something we didn't think that mattered a lot matters a great deal. I mean, that's one of the things we often see in, in our social settings where people are like, well, yeah, of course this offends us because we weren't involved in designing it. And because mm-hmm. you don't think like us, you're not going to be offended or excluded, mm-hmm. you know, something like that. And that's often what happens. And so by, by widening that lens, you start to be able to see the things, the differences that make a difference, if
0: mm-hmm. you will. Mm-hmm. The baits and peace. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
1: I mean, there's times where having professional background really does matter. And there's times where lived experience matters a lot more than others. Mm-hmm. Sometimes if you're developing something brand new that is different for almost everybody, those things might be more minimized. But it doesn't mean they don't matter. It just might mean that that we, we take account of them differently. Mm-hmm. But it's critical. It's absolutely critical when you're working on a complex situation if, if you're dealing with simple a real simple system is pouring water into a cup there's this, there's a few different ways you can get water into a cup but generally mm-hmm. the best way that's almost guaranteed to work is by taking your water from one end and you pour it in the top and that'll pretty much work right you don't need to have a lot of diversity of perspective to, to for that to make sense you have a lot of evidence, but the more complex you're dealing with, all of a sudden that matters a
0: great deal. So, so what's a, you know, let, let's say somebody finds themselves in a complex system or they recognize mm. that, that parts of their work belong in complexity. What is a question they can be asking themselves on an ongoing basis or of their colleagues and um, acquaintances that could help them begin to embody this this systems perspective?
1: You, You know what? One of the best questions is, what might this look like from another position? And really get people to think creatively in that moment about what those other positions might look like. Sometimes those can be quite literally. An interesting example is um, taking them to the art gallery. And take a piece of art that's asymmetrical, for example, like a sculpture. Mm -hmm. And everybody sits around the the circles, surrounds it, and and draws it. What you'll notice is everybody's going to see that piece of art differently. It might look like something a little bit Mm different because of the way the light hits it, because of the angle and that sort of thing. If you think about that from a systems perspective, you start to, to imagine what that might look like. Like what might this situation look like from someone else? And if we take it take it from service design, if we go back to the coffee example, mm-hmm. what, what might this look like uh, as a customer? Mm-hmm. Well, what if my customer was in a wheelchair? Mm-hmm. What might she think about that? Hmm. Mm-hmm. What if she might not be someone who's ever had an espresso before? Hmm. Mm-hmm what if it was somebody who has a visual impairment or doesn't speak English or doesn't speak, like you, could, you might ask all those kinds of questions and the answer might be, you might not be able to address every one of those needs, but all of a sudden you start to think, wow, my service is quite interesting. What if coffee houses are a place of refuge for me because I'm homeless mm. and all I have is, well, nowadays it's like $3, <laughs> 3 $4 mm. in my pocket mm. and mm. this is a way to get out of the cold. What's my cafe going to mean for me? And then you could flip it on side. So what what does it look like if, if I'm a barista and I'm working three jobs because my current job doesn't pay me enough to live? What if it looks like if this is my craft, if I went to school to study? Coffee, Or I just love coffee so much that I read up on it in my spare time. What, what might my professional experience look like?
0: Mm.
1: Just simply asking that question all of a sudden opens up an enormous amount of potential for you to see systems
0: mm.
1: um, with very little data available.
0: Do you, do you have a recommendation for a book about systems thinking?
1: Well, there's a number of different books out there. One of the books that I really like, if you're a little bit more academically inclined or practice oriented, Mm -hmm. um, there's a book called uh, systems thinking, which is a simple title, a creative holism for managers. And it's an older book, but it is by an author named Michael Jackson. (laughs)
0: <laughs> really so wow. that's
1: probably what people will remember and, it, and the reason why that is probably my favorite book on all of this is what he does is he looks at all the different traditions of complexity mm-hmm. and and he he looks at it from a practical standpoint because mm-hmm. he's writing it for managers he's a management scholar or was actually he's retired mm-hmm. now but what what he does is he he puts himself into the perspective of Somebody who's practical and thinking. I don't really know all this system stuff. I'm not going to go to school for it. But I'm, you know, I'm learned and I'm interested in learning. So what he does is he goes through what the central tenets are of each one of those uh, perspectives, and then he sort of critiques them as well. This is the thing I really like is he says, "Here's here's where this theory works really well. Here's where it doesn't work well. Here's how you can use it hmm. and how you can understand it." Um, that's a great book. Another great book. Uh, a couple of books. Um, a guy named Bob Williams. Bob is a is a really interesting guy, mm-hmm. and he's written uh, a book on him and another colleague on looking at systems thinking. And I'm trying to remember the title of it. But but it, they're also very practical. But they're interesting and they're accessible.
0: That is very important. It is. So, so uh, there there's a there's a I guess a caveat that I wanted to share with listeners. You you call them users. Yeah, and I, and I want to caveat why why you said that, uh, and that's because in the uh, design communities, yeah. the people that interact with a product or service are called users. Um, yeah, yeah,
1: and that, that's a good good point to make. Well, it's funny because, um, and I'm not I'm not a big fan of that term. I, I'm not sure what the best alternative is, mm. and there's times when it works really well when you're talking about a service or something like
0: yeah. that. Yeah, and I mean. Uh, yeah. The, I don't think there is a, a better alternative yet because if you say, if you say something is human centered, yeah. uh, that is so vague that it almost <laughs> defeats the very purpose of using that term. Right. But, but yeah. it's sexy. It's catchy. What, what do you mean human centered? Like, you know, does it mean that what I do is not human centered? Oh, well that must mean I'm not doing it well. You know, like it has yeah. this kind of like, I don't know, like world to it. If you, if you take that concept on, but then user, has this side connotation of somebody that consumes yeah. like a, a person who uses others. And I that's to me one of the ickiest human qualities. And so oh. I, yeah, I have this like um, ambivalent feeling about user centered, but it's the tools we have in our vocabulary. So,
1: well, it is, you know, but it's interesting. And just like language, it, it depends on who you're talking to. For some people, that's not a real problematic term, and others, mm-hmm. it, it is, and in certain mm-hmm. contexts. But you're absolutely right. Like, I, I often think that, uh, and design is, is certainly not immune from this, using terms that sound great, we don't dive into very much. I mean, I can spend. I've written. I've written a lot on this. Is that is that how problematic uh, the concept of empathy is? Mm. Because let's face it. If you say, "Why well, I'm, I'm a human-centered designer," mm-hmm. how can I be held to criticism if my designs are right? You know, clearly I'm designing for for humans. I'm like, you uh. know, it's, I've done the best I can, and I would go. Well, it's
0: not you're sure. on the right side of history, right? Like yeah. you, I can't be wrong if what I'm doing is for the my fellow humans, or I think about humans, like yeah, I'm in the right by default and that's dangerous. I think yeah. that can be dangerous. Um,
1: Absolutely. I, I'm empathic. So there's actually recent research that's come out and actually shows that sometimes empathy can actually, there's a bit of a dark side is because you can empathize so much with what particular group that you start to neglect others. Mm. Like, it, it, it's, it's difficult to empathize. Like, if you were to empathize with every single customer you had, like we were talking about mm-hmm. that coffee example,
0: mm-hmm. like
1: that's exhausting.
0: I, I want to share this, this anecdote. Why, why do you think, as, you know, a person trained in counseling psychology, I don't spend a lot of time doing frontline clinical therapy?
1: <laughs> I mean, there could be lots of reasons. I think part of some of it is is that the more you get to understand others, the more you realize how difficult it is. Yeah,
0: it's that empathy piece. When you, be, when, you, when you are an empath, yeah. your personal boundaries become um, so diffuse that you could live other people's lives so well that then you begin to live other people's realities. Oof. Well, that is one hell of a ride if you're a therapist. (laughs) Yeah,
1: Yeah. absolutely, absolutely. And you know, it's interesting. uh, You're touching on on something that's also very near and dear to my heart. Is that I think, like designers Mm. as a field, um, they tend to pat themselves on the back. You know, we're human-centered designers. You know, we're changing the world. We're doing all these great things. And and in fact, in many cases, you know, there's a lot of good stuff that's being done. Um, But doing really good work is is difficult and it's actually difficult on the psyche mm-hmm. because when you start designing for others particularly others who are not like you it does get tiring it gets tiring because you start to understand your own advantages in life you understand the disadvantages of others if we're reflective about our own our own lives that takes a lot of energy and mm-hmm. you know I, anybody who's ever been in in therapy, or mm-hmm. understands you sort of need to take a bit of a time out after that just to kind of recharge because it yeah. it, it takes takes energy and, and and it's it's constructive. It can many kind many ways it's constructive.
0: Yeah,
1: but but when we start doing that with others. It's just as you said, it's a big thing. And I don't think we give ourselves enough space for that. Mm -hmm. Because part of the problem is, is that the risk is that we get to the place where it starts to make us feel a little uncomfortable, and we stop. And we go, great, we've done our, our, you know, human centered design research. Now we're done. We, you know, Mm -hmm we understand that, you know, we're taking notes going, Oh, that must be difficult, you know? And, and yet, you know, really forget to understand what that's like. Um, a guy uh, who does a really good job of being able to talk about that is, is a man named John Colco. He's written a few books in that. I would encourage listeners if they're interested in that to look up some of his stuff. Some of it's actually freely available online, but uh, he's a gr- good writer and a very good thinker. And one of these guys that, um, I think understands the power of design and also its limits Mm. and in a healthy way.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you for, for this wide, varied conversation. And, and I I think you and I both felt the, uh, the tug to go deeper than deep with many of these topics (laughs) and uh, we'll continue chatting offline. But uh, one of the end questions I want to ask you is just reflecting on your own journey and this reflective practice of being Cameron Norman, who are you becoming?
1: You know, that, it's, a, it's a great question. And uh, it's a wonderful question, actually. I, I would say who I want to. I, I think I'm becoming. I, I don't think I'm at the same level as um, I think back to that, to where we started our conversation and talking about that time at my graduation and Paul Antropos. And Paul has been uh, a mentor Uh, He passed away a few years ago. He Mm. was uh, a mentor and a role model for me. And I like to think I'm becoming more like him. Mm. And by that I mean is one of the terms that he used was a healer. And it took a while to understand that. Um, And what a healer is in, in, in in many other cultures is recognizing that healing is about not just recovery, um, but it's about building. It's like your muscles. So your muscles, you know, when when you're growing muscles, they they have to rip, they have to tear a little bit, mm-hmm. and then they 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 come back. And, and it's not just about resilient, you know, that that which kills us <laughs> doesn't kill us, only makes us stronger. Mm-hmm. But um, I think in becoming a better healer, mm-hmm. and uh, by that I mean helping myself and helping others work through some of these things to build things. I, I look at it from a design perspective that Paul mm. wouldn't have done that, but, mm. um, and that means being a, a listener, being a teacher and, um, uh, being a builder.
0: Mm. I hope that this experience for our audience has been healing.
1: <laughs> I, I hope so too. <laughs> um, that would, that would be great. That would be, uh, that would be wonderful. Mm.
0: And so, so a plug for you, uh, for folks that are uh, listening, Cameron has an incredible, incredible newsletter. Um, it's practical. It's uh, it's 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 filled with tidbits and reflections and ideas and resources. I couldn't recommend it enough. Um, so Cameron, where can people find you?
1: Oh, well, thank you so much for that. I, um, so people can find me. I'm, I'm all over the web. But um, if you are interested in this kind of stuff, Thing. um i uh, i many years ago uh, i've got a blog it's called sense making it's a riff on my company's name um cnse making.com um, i have a blog there and you can link to if you're interested in the newsletter there's a there's a link there that you can you can sign up um what i do is i write i, I share things uh and i write about these kinds of ideas in in what it means to innovate in its biggest sense, um, that's a big thing. Um, I'm on LinkedIn, so people can find me there. Um, if you search Cameron Norman, um, uh, my uh, my professional website is uh, sense uh, c n s e dot ca, and I also I, I also have stuff up on there as well. So uh, I'm all over the place, and of course, I'm also on on social media. With Twitter is a, a good place to find me as well uh, at uh, c d norman. Uh, all one word. One of the things I realize is that uh, uh, even with my company name, having uh, verbalizing it is really difficult when you have lots of E's and C's.
0: <laughs> when mm. you're
1: saying it out mm. loud, people go, "Is that a what, what? What is that? Is that two E's or is that a two C's?" <laughs>
0: mm. Mm. It's okay. Well, well, we'll we'll uh, we'll link it in the show notes as well. But uh, Cameron, it's been it's been phenomenal. Thank you for your insights, your ideas, and uh, we'll keep in touch.
1: Yeah, uh, this is fantastic. And uh, thanks, Art. I, uh, I really appreciate that. And uh, thank you for uh, allowing me to, to converse with you and your audience.
0: That's it for this episode, folks. Head on over to letsdeveloppodcast.com for detailed show notes to quench your thirst for knowledge. If you like what you heard, and even if you didn't, leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening to let us know how we're doing. We're in it together. The Let's Develop podcast is co-created by Chris Raymond, executive producer and music maker, Emily Scollin, digital content mastermind, and yours truly, Artisoyans, host and producer. Special thanks to Brittany Fraser and others for continuing to inspire us, teach us, and build us together. See you next time.